<laughs> okay, is there more of a lazy, good-for-nothing character in movies or TV ever than Grandpa Joe? This no-good mf'er is laying in bed for decades, eating cabbage water off the back of his daughter at his grandson's expense when he could be getting out and having a real job and doing something productive for his community and society. What in the heck? Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in today. We are doing a movie classic, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Throwing it back to 1971. 1971. That is a year in which we were not alive, but it's a solid movie. I feel like almost everyone has seen some version of this movie. They came out with another version in 2005 with Johnny Depp playing Willy Wonka. Carla, wasn't that called Charlie in the Chocolate Factory? It was, which is also an accurate name of the book. The book by Roald Dahl was named Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. I read that the 2005 Johnny Depp version was not a remake of the 1971 Gene Wilder film, but it was a remake of the book. So not not the same. Yeah, so it has been approximately 100 years since I read the actual book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I really like Roald Dahl. I was a fan of his. He's kind of dark, though. Like When you go back and read some of his books as an adult, which I'm actually doing right now for my Spanish group, we are rereading the book Matilda in Spanish very difficult i will say it might be at a children's reading age in english for me but who that is some challenging stuff in spanish but in any event i'm rereading it and like oh my gosh some of that stuff is really dark like mrs trunchbull principal trunchbull and a lot of her antics that she does with the kids that's some intense stuff going on did she win a golden ticket did i miss her in the movie <laughs> Okay, I'm going far afield from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. But Willy Wonka, or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the original book, was also quite dark. I mean, a lot of the stuff that happens to these kids in the movie is pretty accurately based on the book, as best I can recall. And, I mean, kids are just dying left and right, basically. So you start off by saying that everybody has seen this. Did you know that this was not much of a commercial success? So they Can't spent believe it. they spent about three million dollars making the movie, and it only made four million dollars globally at the box office. It's, I mean, it's just it's shocking. It's shameful. It's a dark period in history. What else can you say about it? Yeah, the original production company uh, just abandoned the rights to the movie after uh, they they start to expire, and somebody else swooped in, scooped up those rights, and started airing it on TV, and it became really popular, and it had good VHS sales. And it became the, you know, the classic that we all know today. Yeah, I definitely think it has classic status. I can't, I feel like I could talk to almost anyone on planet Earth, make a Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory reference, and most people would get it. Like, oh, yeah. Like, uh, I think on the Wikipedia page or the IMDb page about the movie, there's a list of other cultural references that go back to Willy Wonka. And it's insane. Like, everything. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just so iconic. There's so many things that are that feel really unique about this movie. It just feels so not derivative of anything. It's just like fresh and kooky and crazy and funny. There's there's a lot of good things to say about this film. 
So Gene Wilder, he's phenomenal. He does a great job as Willy Wonka. One of the things that I read was that he had a very unusual demand in order to have a chance to be in this movie. So they did their auditions and it was clear that he was the right fit. He had the right blend of, of darkness to go along with the humor and the timing and just the, his incredible comedic skill. And he, he went to the director of the movie and said, look, I'll do it on one condition. So I think we probably all remember his iconic first scene in the movie, which doesn't come until like the halfway point in the film. He makes his way out there with a the cane and he's limping and he's ever so slowly making his way out to the front gate to let those golden ticket winners in and he loses his cane it gets stuck in the cobblestone and it looks like he's gonna fall and it turns into this fun somersault jump up surprise at the end that was not part of the original plot in the movie or anything like that that's something that gene wilder came up with in the audition phase and he said look i am only gonna do this movie if you allow me to do that and everyone's like why are you so obsessed with this he said "Uh, after i do that no one will know what whether I'm believable about anything from thereafter. And I think he's right. It created an air of mystique that was really necessary. What's funny though, is it's not like he's a stunt man. I think he spent about two weeks learning how to safely do that stunt <laughs> in order to be able to pull it off in the movie. Yeah. A, a somersault from a standing position doesn't sound super easy. I would have to train for a good while to do that. Yeah. I, I sort of have, I mean, I get where he's coming from that it makes him seem kind of unpredictable and, from here on out, you never know whether to believe him or not. But it's also a little bit like shaming someone for having a disability like that, which doesn't seem super awesome. So, I mean, just the way that like the crowd reacts to it, right? Like they go deadly silent when they see him limping, like, oh no, he has a disability. And then when he doesn't, it's like, yay, we love Willy Wonka again. So <laughs> there's a little bit of like, I don't know, disability shaming going on there to go hand in hand with the fat shaming that we're going to have just a little bit later in the movie. So what I will say is that I think that actually was genuine surprise and applause for him that the the actors did not know that this was coming. One of the things that the director did in the movie that was really cool is, is some of the fun things that Gene Wilder had going on he didn't expose a lot of the other people to beforehand. So there were several scenes in the movie where something happens and Gene Wilder knows it's coming, but the rest of the actors have zero idea exactly what the set is going to look like or the way that Gene Wilder is going to play something. And their astonishment or their, you know, fear or, or whatever strong emotion is genuinely displayed as an actual reaction from the actors in character rather than something that they've done 17 takes beforehand. Um, and I think that somersault scene is one of those. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, well, it was 1971. I guess we got to cut him a little slack for any uh, not super uh, PC things that they were doing back then. But it definitely makes for a can we trust this guy kind of an introduction. So I think he accomplished that goal. Which of the five kids do you think is the worst? I think you got to go with Veruca Salt. Okay. Well, I read that Gene Wilder felt like Mike TV the actual actor kid was the worst. That that kid was a no good SOB. Oh, no. <laughs> that uh, he was just a troublemaker and he was, you know, birthed for the role. Oh, gosh, that's funny. Uh, they have a, a part of the set in one of the scenes, they have some bees that are supposed to be making honey. And this little twerp of a kid goes and opens up the jar that has all the bees in it and lets a bunch of them out. 
true to form, one of the bees stings the Mike TV actor in the face <laughs> after he does this. So he got his just desserts. Yeah. So I think one thing we all can't help but be curious about when we watch this show is how these kids turned out because at least the way that they're portrayed in the movie, you know, they've got some serious personality quirks. Sounds like maybe for Mike TV, some of those came naturally to him. So let's let's go through and find out what happened to each of these kids, child actors in real life. So Veruca Salt actually turns out to be kind of a lovely person. She's had a pretty successful career. She went on to do a lot of other acting gigs. Um, I think mostly in the UK where she's from. So not a lot of like American stuff that Americans would recognize her for. But I think she had a pretty successful go continuing on as an actor. And then in her later years, she became a therapist, which I think is pretty cool. So she had a pretty awesome life. The sad one is Violet Beauregard. She apparently had kind of a rocky patch trying to continue acting. Couldn't find enough gum-related roles. Couldn't find enough gum-related roles. So she finally hung it up when she was uh, 21 years old. And after that, it's not really clear what she did for work, if anything. I think she did get married and had a son. And as far as I can tell, didn't continue to do anything work-wise. And passed away from a stroke when she was only in her early 60s. So that's a shame. But I saved the good stuff for last. The other kids had more more fun. So um, Peter Ostrom, who plays Charlie Bucket, he's everyone's favorite, right? He went on to become a veterinarian, which I think is great. He just decided that the on-screen life wasn't for him. He wanted to do something different. So I think he practices in New York and does like large animal veterinary work, which is pretty darn cool. Augustus Gloop became an accountant, which seems pretty interesting. Also, he turned out to be six foot seven. Which I just Are you said. serious? Yeah. Okay. Very, very tall. It's a tall human being. And then finally, Mike TV kind of stayed within the entertainment industry, but did a lot of other things. He's sort of like a serial entrepreneur. I think he had a casting company at one point, has done like a lot of behind the scenes stuff and just started like tons and tons of businesses. So it's kind of one thing after another. But my favorite is true to the movie, Charlie Bucket becoming a veterinarian. I just think that's pretty cool. Well, I didn't think he was that good of an actor in the movie, so <laughs> sounds about right that he had to abandon that's that. That's terrible. I think he did a great job. He, he was very sweet. He was very likable. He wasn't the best singer, but, you know, not everyone can do everything. I read that he went through puberty during the movie, and if you look at some of the songs that they performed in the beginning versus the end, uh, his... The depth of his voice has changed a bit. Yeah. Gosh, I do not envy child actors having to go through puberty on screen. And my heart goes out to those child actors. Well, we've talked a lot about the, kind of the basics of the movie. But if you don't remember, the basic plot summary is that Charlie Bucket is from a poor family. They are struggling to make ends meet. And, um, you know, he, he, he lives in a home with uh, just his mom. His dad's died. He's got all four grandparents living there. They're all bedridden. Uh, he's got a little paper route that he does for a little bit of side money to help the family. Uh, Willy Wonka is this recluse chocolatier who has this factory that happens to be in Charlie Bucket's hometown. And he decides to do this big giveaway where he will be giving a lifetime supply of chocolate to people. And the whole world goes bonkers and bananas to try to win the chance to, to get to have a tour of the factory and the lifetime supply of chocolate. And we just get to see the experiences of all the people trying to 
to win that. There are five children who end up getting the golden tickets, which were the promotion that gave you access to the lifetime supply of chocolate. We, we see them tour the factory. We meet the Oompa Loompas, the, the workers, the slaves. I don't, I don't quite know how to, it's to characterize. It's unclear. Um, he does say that he saved them from Lupa Land, but I'm a little bit like a little dicey on that. Correct. More more 1970s, uh, yes. not so PC work there. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, wonderful story, great time. We have a blast, but I think the central part about Charlie Bucket that you have to understand is that he comes from a poor family, and our first clip will will shed a little bit more light on that. He works too hard for a little boy. He should have some time to play. Not enough hours in the day. With the four you bedridden for the past twenty years, it takes a lot of work to keep this family going. If only his father were alive. As soon as I get my strength back, I'm going to get out of this bed and help him. Dad, in all the years you've been saying you're going to get out of that bed, I've yet to see you set foot on the floor. Hi, everybody. Is this your supper, Grandpa? Well, it's yours too, Charlie. I'm fed up with cabbage water. It's not enough. Charlie. That's all we have. What are you saying? How about this? Charlie, where'd you get that? What difference does it make where he got it? Point is, he got it. It's my first payday. Good for you, Charlie. We'll have a real banquet. Mom, here's what's left. You keep it. Except for this. From now on, I'm going to pay for your tobacco. No one's going to pay for it, Charlie. I'm giving it up. Come on, Dad. It's only one pipe a day. When a loaf of bread looks like a banquet, I have no right buying tobacco. So I, I don't think I noticed this until listening to it without seeing the audio in front of me. But is that like Grandpa George snoring in the background in the beginning? That is correct. Okay. Wow. Yes. So there's just a ton to unpack from this clip. There's so much going on. So let's talk first about the idea of kids, especially kids this young, having jobs and what that could mean for the future, whether we think that's a good idea well, I mean, when I was in high school, I had a job as soon as I was you know, old enough to get one. I was excited for the chance to have a little bit of spending money and the chance to do something, you know, quasi-productive with my time. I'm a big fan of kids having jobs. I, It is really unfortunate, the situation that the Bucket family is in, right? You've got a single mom taking care of a child and four bedridden, you know, grandparents that are living in the home and man, like that, that's really, really tough in the 1970s. I'm sure the wage inequality was even worse at that time. Uh, it doesn't seem like she has a ton of special skills that give her the great opportunity to earn a lot. We see her working as a, uh, doing laundry for money. Um, so, so really, really tough conditions. The idea that Charlie can pitch in and help out the family family finances is fantastic. I think that certainly used to be a common thing back in the day. Like everybody's got to do their part to help make ends meet. And I think that's, that's a really wonderful thing from a life lessons standpoint, even though it's a tragic thing for it to be a necessity. I certainly agree with Grandpa Joe in the beginning, say he should play more. He should have more time to do fun things. Like that is really important to nurture in the development of children. But I do like the idea of kids getting jobs. Like from, from a money standpoint, it's great. I think it, it really helps you. Uh, learn to manage money, but I think it also exposes you to areas of responsibility that maybe you don't get in other places, right? Normally you do things to make your parents happy or proud or because the teacher says you're supposed to. 
when you have a job, you have an employer who's giving you direction and you have to make decisions on the fly and you're dealing with people outside of your own age cohort in a way that maybe you don't otherwise in life. I think it just, it gives you the opportunity to build confidence and skills that aren't readily learned in the classroom. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think it can be a really positive thing. I do think Charlie is a little bit too young for it. I think we're not really sure exactly what age he's supposed to be, but I think it's like 11-ish would be my guess. So yeah, he's he's still very young. And there are examples of kids, especially you know in today's world, you have kids starting their own like unboxing channels on YouTube <laughs> or doing all kinds of, you know, really intense like online businesses that can really take off. And look, if you can get wealthy or start accumulating even a small nest egg at a young age, it's so powerful because one, it could either pay for your education, which is an investment in and of itself, assuming you pick a good career path and don't, you know, pick something that's unlikely to have good payoffs down the road, but it can either be an investment in your education or it can be just a straight up investment investment. And then you've got the power of compound interest really working for you. I mean, imagine if you started at age 11, like putting away, you know, a hundred bucks a month, like by the time you're retirement age, that's going to give you a huge leg up that you wouldn't have if you'd started when you were say 30, right? It's an extra 19 years of investing and compound interest working for you. So it can be really, really powerful. I think it's great. But I think you have to balance it with making sure that you are going to grow up to be a mentally healthy adult, that you actually are enjoying your precious, precious childhood that you have. So Charlie seems pretty okay with his paper route. Obviously, paper route is like a classic thing for a kid to do. They're out, you know, like running around riding their bikes anyway. Why not make a little pocket money for it? So... I don't think this seems too psychologically damaging for him. He's not like in a sweatshop or anything, but I think it's just something that parents have to be careful about keeping that balance. Yeah, I think for Charlie, they should certainly strive to ensure that he doesn't feel like he needs to go sacrifice that much for the family, right? He shouldn't, well, we can talk about the tobacco habit in a minute, but I I think he shouldn't be giving all of his wages to the family. It'd be great if he can have a little bit left over for some fun and to set to set himself up for success later in life, right? The, the best thing that he can do for his mom is to make it to where he's one less mouth to feed. Yeah, in you know, like six, seven years when he's fully grown and graduating from high school, for him to be able to say, okay, I'm going to go get a better education or I'm going to start working in a more skilled job. I'm going to move out and be on my own. Yeah, right? yeah. All of those things would be hugely beneficial to her. So you know what would be beneficial to her? is if her dad would get off of his ass. Okay, is there more of a lazy, good-for-nothing character in movies or TV ever than Grandpa Joe? He, I'm pretty sure he is the actual worst. He gets an F- minus at being a human being. This Just... guy. This guy. I mean, he's in bed. He's been in bed for 20 years. We heard that in the clip. Yeah. What we don't show you is the clip when Charlie wins the golden ticket. And he gets Grandpa Joe out of bed. And this guy doesn't fall flat on his face like he can't walk. In five minutes, he's up singing and dancing. He's jumping on one leg, <laughs> clicking his heels together. I don't know that I have the 
you know, the skills and athleticism <laughs> to pull that off today. And I get out of bed every day. This no good MFer is laying in bed for decades, eating cabbage water off the back of his daughter at his grandson's expense when he could be getting out and having a real job and doing something productive for his community and society. What in the heck? <laughs> it's okay. You can cuss. Grandpa Joe is cussworthy. Um, yeah, Grandpa Joe is the literal worst. I cannot imagine what kind of person sits there in bed for 20 years, looks at the circumstances around him, the child like hungry for something more than just cabbage water, the mother slaving away, coming home with aching feet, desperate to feed her child something more substantial. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm cool. I'm good. I'm just going to lie here in bed. That that floor looks really cold. When I try to get out of bed, it feels really cold on my little tootsies. I don't think I'm going to get out of bed. Literally the worst. He is so awful. The fact, well, okay, first of all, it is wildly unrealistic that someone who has been bedridden for 20 years could then just get up and start <laughs> dancing. Like, your muscles would be so atrophied. Which is part of the point. Like, it's really uncomfortable. I think he's been sneaking out of bed in the middle of the night. I think so, too. Staying fit. I think so, too. It's uncomfortable to stay in bed for that long, right? Like, when you're sick and you're stuck in bed for so long, I mean, people get bed sores from this kind of thing, right? Like, you have to move your body around. It's just necessary. So, I think he's been sneaking out, which is awful. And he clearly has done something to keep those muscles from atrophying so much. He's such a jerk. So the actor that is portraying him is 63 years old, which means that we're supposed to believe that this guy who looks 63 has been in bed since he was 43 years old. <laughs> like, that is just insanity. He had a bad day in his early 40s, decided never to get up again. I, yeah, clearly it is possible you could have some sort of terrible accident that, like, maims you and keeps you bedridden in your, at what any age, right? But, I mean, he... We never hear about anything like that. He seems to have just like, well, I'm old and tottery at 43. <laughs> no, it's well, ridiculous. Uh, I think in the book he was nine in his 90s. So it, it's a little bit more believable. Um, what I really hate about him, in addition to his utter laziness and you know gaming the system, is the way that he acts like Charlie's going to win this golden ticket because he wants it more. I think he has this, his attitude about everything is ridiculous. Charlie wants it more. He deserves it more. Uh, not thinking about how this is just a random distribution of tickets that someone should just get lucky and win. That's not how life works. I mean, not everybody gets the lottery of being able to lay in bed for 20 years. And uh, just because you want to do nothing more than anybody else you get to. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah, he says a lot of things that I don't agree with. So in this clip, we hear him saying, who cares where Charlie got this loaf of bread that seems like a banquet to this family, right? So he brings this loaf of bread home. His mom says, where did you get that? And Grandpa it doesn't Joe's matter. Like, who cares? Who cares? We got bread tonight. We're excited. Yeah. Like, if he's stealing that, that is a genuine problem. And his mom is right to be oh, questioning Grandpa, that. Grandpa Joe is all about the stealing, guaranteed. I'm, it seems like that. He's just He just seems like he doesn't have any moral fiber whatsoever. Yeah. Well, I mean, with the fizzy lifting drinks, he's the one who encourages them to go do that thing. That's right? so true. It's like, oh, it's fine. We'll, we'll catch up in a bit. No, he's really a horrible person and yeah. a terrible mentor uh, and role model for Charlie to model his life after. Yeah, not a fan. Not a fan of Grandpa Joe. So yeah. let's touch briefly on his tobacco habit because that is a habit that a lot of people struggle with in real life. So we don't know what a little pinch of tobacco to go in a pipe would have cost 
back in 1971, but we did look up what a pack of cigarettes costs today. So on average in the United States, a pack of cigarettes costs about $8 per pack, and it comes with 20 cigarettes per pack, I think in a standard pack. So that can add up a lot. A lot of people, you know, hear about like pack-a-day smokers, which if you're really into smoking, 20, I mean, they go pretty fast, right? They only last for a couple of minutes. You got a lot of minutes in a day. It's pretty easy to see how someone could get up to a pack a day. So that would be $8 times $365 a year. I think you're looking at a little under $3,000 a year for a pack a day habit if you're that heavy of a smoker. Well, if you're living in the Charlie Bucket household, you're living on basically minimum wage as a family of six. Yeah. Um, if you're trying to, to fund a, a pack a day smoking habit, living on minimum wage in the U.S. today, you're basically taking about 20% of your wages if you're working 40 hours a week um, towards buying cigarettes. Yeah. It is a very, very expensive habit. And of course, we're not even getting into any of the healthcare costs that would eventually result if you have that heavy of a smoking habit. So yeah, it can really, really add up and be a major line item in your budget. I was going to say, I think today it's quite common for there to be different insurance premium rates for people, depending on whether they're a smoker or not. Yeah, that's so true. So fucking A, Grandpa Joe, you shouldn't be smoking pipe tobacco when your family is looking at a loaf of bread like a banquet. I mean, that might be one of the few things he says in the movie that I agree with. But, you know, day late, dollar fucking short. Like, why didn't he do this a long damn time ago? Ah, Grandpa Joe. Yeah. Just the worst. Just the worst. All right. So we've gone through this initial clip where you meet the Bucket family. Uh, Let's find out where all the enthusiasm begins when we first learn about the promotion that Wonka has. What's happening? Willy Wonka's opening his factory. He's going to let people in. You sure? It's on the radio and he's giving truckloads of chocolate away. Class dismissed. No, no, it's only for five people. Class undismissed. He sent him five golden tickets and the people who find him will win the big prize. Where's he hidden the tickets? Inside five Wonka bars. you got to buy Wonka bars to find him. Class three dismissed. The little kid who is telling the teacher, so this is set in Charlie's school. The guy, older guy with the British accent that you hear is Charlie's teacher. And this little kid who's telling him about the contest is so adorable. But I, he's, he says the word truckload of chocolate. I just, I cannot not hear fuckload. That is all I hear coming out of that sweet little innocent face. He's giving away a fuckload of chocolate. It's great. All I know is I hate that teacher. I, I So I remember the scene... Uh, for years, I would always repeat this. Uh, he was like, "How many Wonka bars did you buy?" Let's assume that there's a thousand, and he's trying to do. He's trying to explain how percentages work to people. And Charlie says he bought two, and he's like, "Oh, two, hundred. That's easy." He's like, "No, no, no. I meant two. And the teacher's like, two? I can't do two. It's like, <laughs> seriously, why can't you convert two out of a thousand like the same way they do in the rest of these? What kind of terrible teacher are you?" He's not a great teacher. I no. mean, we do see him mess up that chemistry experiment as well. He's not a great teacher, Robert. I'm not sure that he messed up the chemistry experiment. Maybe it was supposed to go boom. <laughs> Maybe it was. So a few things to cover from this clip. One, we're learning about this whole golden ticket idea, which has really, that is probably the main thing that has stuck in popular culture after Willy Wonka is this idea of a golden ticket. Well, I mean, the candies, the everlasting gobstopper. So it's really funny 
Carla says to me, are those still around? I remember those being candies when I was a kid. And the very next day after we watched this in preparation for this recording, I got on a flight and the couple on the other side of the aisle for me was eating out of a box of Everlasting Gobstoppers. So that has also persisted. It's yeah. not just the golden ticket. The, the Everlasting Gobstoppers are around too. That's true. Right. Man, I'm, I feel certain that I've had cavities filled specifically because of Everlasting Gobstoppers. Those things are murder on your teeth. But in any event, yeah, the golden ticket, I, I would argue, is the most enduring pop culture reference that we have from Willy Wonka. And I think a lot of people have talked about how smart of an idea it was and what good marketing it was and how we can learn from that if you're someone who's trying to market today. So Robert, I know you have an affinity for fast food. Would you like to talk a little bit about the McDonald's Monopoly promotion? I would. Yeah, I think this is definitely like when I thought about what promotions have happened like this in the real world, the McDonald's Monopoly certainly seems like the the, the big ticket winner. Um, it started, I think, in 1987 and has been a wildly successful promotion that's been offered off and on over the years since then. I think it's it's been hugely successful. We looked it up and I think you said their net revenue increases during this were, were only a 5% increase, which kind of surprised me. I certainly would have expected it to have been higher because they, they did this promotion in some really clever ways. One, it drives people to the store in the first place, right? If you're in the mood for some terrible fast food, uh, why are you going to choose Burger King or Wendy's or one of the other similar fast food burger joints over McDonald's when McDonald's is offering you the chance to win a million dollars or a trip to Cancun or whatever other crazy prizes that they're offering, including um, like you win immediately sort of things from the food. Right. Like I, th- I think 15 to 20 percent of the tickets that you would pull were instant winners where you get like a free hash browns or a breakfast sandwich or a large fries. So I, I think any rational person who's making their purchases based on the expected value of their purchase would lean into McDonald's among similar choices. The other thing that they do that I think is super clever is that they get to decide which of their items they're incentivizing you to buy. When you go to McDonald's and you play Monopoly, not every item on the menu comes with the Monopoly tickets. They, they specifically choose to put those on high margin items for them, right? I mean, obviously that's what they're trying to do. The things that they want you to buy, whether it's a new item that they're gonna have in the stores for a long time and it's an important promotion or a regular staple of the McDonald's offering, they're driving you to buy the things that you wouldn't otherwise normally buy. I, I certainly can think back to when I was a college student. I'm pretty sure they were giving away the Monopoly tickets on like supersized drinks, but not regular sized drinks. Or maybe they had them like on all sized drinks, but not super, but only on supersized fries. So I, I definitely remember days when I would go to McDonald's. It was like across the street from the engineering school at, at Texas A&M. Uh, during the Monopoly promotion, and I would get stuff supersized that I wouldn't ordinarily do just because it gave me the extra Monopoly tickets, which is stupid. Like, in hindsight, that was really dumb, but it worked. It did exactly what they wanted to do. Yeah, It got me to spend more money on items where they're making more profit for the cost of this simple little promotion. People love to win things. That's really what it boils down to, right? We love that little adrenaline rush that we get when we're peeling those little labels off the front of a carton of french fries. 
we just want so badly to to feel special and winning makes us feel special. Well, you, you get a game, you get this suspenseful moment, right? Mm, exactly. Yeah. So I think promotions like that have always been incredibly successful. And yeah, the idea of these golden tickets, they keep the supply of them really, really low, right? There's only five golden tickets in the entire planet. I think for a McDonald's Monopoly, they only had like one or two of the grand prizes, the million dollar prizes is what I think was pretty Yeah, that's, that's the way right. it worked. They had uh, basically an even distribution of all the other ones. Then within each of the different categories, they had a small number of the rare pieces, which is why, you know, once things became really available online, it was very easy to complete your, you know, your trio or all four rail- railroads, whatever you were trying to get together um, because a bunch of them were super, super common. One of the things that's interesting, though, is it was ripe for fraud because there were only a handful of victorious pieces out there. And there was some company who was involved in the promotions. And what do you know, like almost all of the major victories in the late 90s to early 2000s happened to go to, to those people and their friends and family. Like they basically orchestrated. They knew where the, the winning pieces were going to be. I don't know if they even distributed them the way they were supposed to. And yeah, that... That was bad. Yeah, I remember reading a case based on that, um, either when I was in law school or not long after. But yeah, there was a lawsuit brought. And these days, I mean, it would be so easy to hop online these days and buy the pieces that you were missing. In fact, there was there was a subreddit called like Monopoly Trading where people were doing this back and forth. But apparently, like all the online platforms like Reddit and eBay really clamped down on that. And would immediately delete an item that was a Monopoly ticket. So also you could get sued by McDonald's for violating their terms of play. So Well, I mean, the reality is if you got one of the good pieces, then you just need to go to McDonald's a bunch and surely you'll get the missing ones pretty easily. Yeah, that's very true. If you were lucky enough to get the one, I think like Park Place and board, or Boardwalk were the big ticket items that were really hard to find. Yeah, I remember when we lived in Dallas, one of the grocery stores in like 2008 or so, 2009, uh, was doing some kind of similar promotion and they had a board thing and you put little stickers on. And I'm pretty sure within like three trips to the grocery store, we got three out of four in each of the 10 different sets that they were having you try to get all four in. And, you know, for the next few months, it was like, oh, maybe we'll get one of these. No, of course not. Right. We just got repeat after repeat after repeat. Yeah. So I think that's an important lesson to take away from this discussion is that these kinds of promotions can do exactly what you were talking about happening to you at McDonald's, where you get tempted into buying things that you don't actually need or often even want, right? I mean, you can only eat so many chocolate bars. And if you're going crazy buying an insane number of chocolate bars just looking for a golden ticket, you have made a poor decision, right? You are just spending money for a minuscule chance at winning this grand prize. So we talked in previous episodes about the lottery and what a sucker's play that is. This is exactly the same thing. If you are just spending money to get a chance at winning this promotion, you are literally playing the lottery. Yeah, you really need to exercise restraint and make sure that you're just doing what you would normally do or a very minor adjustment because you think it's more fun. That That's a way for you to spend your time and your money uh, in a combined way that brings you joy, but not going all in, right? You can't, you know, it, it's pretty crazy that the teacher asks these students how many chocolate bars they ate and people are like, oh, 150. It's like, 
over a multi-week period, you got 150 Wonka bars? Are you crazy? Yeah. It's a lot of chocolate. <laughs> so Wonka has given out this prize, which includes uh, opening up the factory and a lifetime supply of chocolate. Um, what do you think is more intriguing to people? Like Charlie Bucket lives in this community and he knows that Wonka is this recluse and nobody ever goes in, nobody ever comes out into the factory. And so for him, I'm sure it is really interesting to go tour this factory. For other people, it's just a chocolate factory. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's an interesting question because a lifetime supply of chocolate, what does that actually mean? You know, a lot of giveaways tell you you're going to win a lifetime supply of whatever it might be, Subway sandwiches, ice cream. And I always think those are interesting thought experiments, right? Because what is what does that actually mean? Is there any limit on it? Surely they're at least putting like a no resale rule on you, right? So you can't just say, oh, no, I really plan on eating 75 gallons of ice cream today, when in reality, you're keeping one well, your, and selling 74. Right? I mean, I've seen this before. So, you know, I, I must admit that I do eat fast food. And um, being from Baton Rouge, I've eaten at Raisin Cane's Chicken Fingers a lot. Uh, they've been following me around the country wherever I go. They always open one up. Um, there's one here in Longmont now. Um, <laughs> anyway, they, on their receipts, I think almost always have a 1-800 number that you can call and participate in a survey about your service and your experience there. And if you participate in the survey and you get selected, they will give you a year's supply of Raising Cane's. But it's quite clear on there that their definition of a year's supply is a once, once a month. Right, you can go to the store once a month and presumably get like a single serving item, which you know, reasonable, a nice giveaway that doesn't cost you anything other than your time to give feedback to this place. I've never actually called and participated in the survey or anything, but like my definition of a year-long supply of raising canes and their definition are not the same. Yeah. <laughs> they should be the same, for the record. <laughs> they should be the same. But yeah, I mean, everyone's definition of a lifetime supply is going to vary, right? They could be giving away something that I would rather die than ingest. So what does that what does that really mean to a lot of people? Now, chocolate is something that I do very much enjoy. We almost always have a little bit of chocolate in the house. So I would be excited to get a lifetime supply of chocolate. But I don't know, you if you have an unlimited supply of something, you're almost invariably going to get sick of it. And... It just seems like the kind of thing that sounds really exciting up front, but isn't actually that exciting in reality as, as life goes on. So, Well, Carla, you are not aligned with the characters in the movie. So not only do we have the children who actually win the golden tickets, but we see so many other people going bonkers for it. I think there was there was a psychiatrist who had a patient who had some sort of dream that he found that the, the golden ticket. And instead of actually talking to this patient about what's going on, the 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 practitioner gets very angry. He says, tell me where the, where to find the ticket. Like he gets really, really <laughs> mad. There's some guy who invents a computer that has got some algorithm that has analyzed a bunch of data and knows exactly where to go find the ticket. And it's like, he has some investors behind him ready to go. Like yeah. be, he's finally ready to give them the answer. And he punches in the sequence and the computer spits out. I can't tell you that would be cheating. <laughs> um, and then the, the computer spits back out. Like, what would a computer do with a lifetime supply of chocolate? Like, it, I mean, it's very funny, but at the same time, it's very ridiculous. Like, why would people be going this berserk for a lifetime supply of chocolate? Yeah, it does seem a little, a little bit outlandish. Kids, adults, like everyone is just acting like this is 
the best thing that has ever happened on planet Earth that someone could win a lifetime supply of chocolate. So one of the characters who does eventually find a golden ticket is Veruca Salt. Veruca um, has, is such a compelling character that she, I mean, isn't there a band named Veruca Salt? Indeed there is. Okay, well, let's learn a little bit more about her. I want you to be the first to find a golden ticket, Daddy. I know, Angel. We're doing the best we can. I've got every girl on the bleeding staff hunting for you. All right, where is it? Why haven't they found it? Veruca, sweetheart, I'm not a magician. Give me time. I want it now. What's the matter with those twerps down there? For five days now, the entire flipping factory's been on the job. They haven't shelled a peanut in there since Monday. They've been shelling flaming chocolate bars from dawn to dusk. Make them work nights. Come along, come along, you girls. Put a jerk in it, or you'll be out in your ears, every one of you. But listen to this. The first girl that finds a golden ticket gets a one-pound bonus in her pay packet. What do you think of that? They're not even trying. They don't want to find it. They're jealous of me. Sweetheart, I can't push them no harder. 19,000 bars an hour they're shelling. 760,000 they've done so far. Okay, Robert, I think we should start by doing the math on this. So take it away. Tell us how much money they've spent and like how how the unshelling process is going. I mean, they're just jealous of her, Carla. They're yeah. so jealous. They're obviously so jealous. So, okay, we argued a lot about how to value in today's dollars a Wonka bar. What we came down to was that a, a nice conservative, reasonable estimate was $2 a bar. In today's dollars. In today's dollars. These are not tiny. These are not fun size or candy size or, you know, snack size. These are, they're not like standard size. They're, they're more like, like a king size type, type bar of chocolate, but they're not, you know, you know, they're, they're big. They're really, really large. So we think $2 is a reasonable approximation here. Um, I actually think that's a little bit low for a good quality chocolate bar. It's really low for like a pretty low end chocolate bar. I think it's reasonable. Okay. Well, yeah, $2. Let's just assume like that's a comfortable estimate for the number of chocolate bars. We hear that they have been shelling 19,000 bars an hour and we know they haven't shelled anything. They haven't shelled any peanuts since Monday. It's only been chocolate bars. So they've been hard at work at this. Um, 19,000 an hour. It's been 760,000 that they've shelled so far which equates to 40 hours worth of labor for the team. But 760,000 chocolate bars at $2 a bar is $1.52 million in chocolate bars (laughs) that are just being unwrapped, unceremoniously thrown onto the table, and eventually swept away and discarded. Correct. So, wow. That's that's pretty crazy. Um, I mean, forget the cost of the chocolate is a lot, but like the the waste of human capital is pretty insane too. So if you look at the film, they have five columns of workers, and it's hard to tell how many women. It's exclusively women doing the the shelling here for some reason. Um, but these women, there are at least seventeen in a row. There's like one slow motion shot where you can see the women. Uh, working in a line at the tables, and there's five columns of tables. So that's 85 women working. If you assume that they're paying them uh, minimum wage at $7.25 an hour today, well, 40 hours times 85 women is 3,400 hours of work. At minimum wage, that gets you to $24,650 in labor. Now, 
I guess we should mention that as the employer, they'd be responsible for their share of Social Security and Medicare taxes as well. Mm -hmm. So it's costing them even more than that for these people to be working. Correct. But, you know, add the chocolate and the labor, you're looking at $1.55 million to go after this. Now, (laughs) let's talk a little bit about what is the value of a lifetime supply of chocolate? Yep. So Great let, question. So these bars, which we've already established, are large, right? Like, so how many of these can you really eat in a day? So I really love chocolate. Like, I love it a lot. I don't even think of it as candy. It's just a necessity. So we always have some in the house. I, I don't know that I could push myself to eat an entire one of those bars in a day. To eat two a day would be unthinkable. I can't All right, well, let's think it. it. Let's think the unthinkable. Okay. Two bars a day at $2 a bar at 365 days a year for 60 years. And let's be serious. If you're eating two of these bars a day, you're not eating them for 60 years. You're dying way before then. Good call. Uh, I agree. Nevertheless, that's $87,600 to buy a lifetime (laughs) supply of chocolate. So they're spending $1.55 million to have a shot at an $85,000 prize. Mr. Salt has spent 18 lifetime supplies of chocolate. (laughs) In the quest to win one. So in our last clip, we talked about what's more valuable to people. Is it the touring of the factory or is it the lifetime supply of chocolate? It's oh. obviously subjective. But So let's <laughs> talk a little bit because there are real life chocolate factories, right? Chocolate does exist on planet Earth, thankfully. And you can go and tour chocolate factories, right? This is not like most people are not Willy Wonka. You can actually go and see how the chocolate gets made. So we looked this up to go to Hershey, Pennsylvania and tour the Hershey Chocolate Factory will cost you a sum total of, wait for it, drum roll, zero dollars. You can take a tour of the chocolate factory for absolutely nothing. I think you have to get into the park first, right? Oh, I don't think so. Really? Yeah. There's also Hershey Park, which is an amusement park. I went as a kid. It was really fun. Me too. Super cool place. But to get into the park, it took... It will cost you $54.95 to get a day pass. You can get a season pass for $200. So I'm thinking maybe Mr. Saltz and family did not make the best call here. Like you can go and see these things and go to an amusement park on top of all of that for a low, low price of $54.95. The Cadbury Chocolate Factory in the United Kingdom will charge you 20 pounds to get in and tour the chocolate factory. So I get that Willy Wonka has a mystique. Nobody comes in, nobody comes out. You want to know what's going on in there. But is it really worth $1.55 million? Like, is that reasonable from anyone's point of view? Where do you think Mr. Salt would have stopped? I have absolutely no idea. So I think that's a good segue into Veruca Salt in general and what an epically terrible person she is. Make them work nights. Make them work nights. She is, I think, the most spoiled character that's ever been portrayed on television, which is saying a lot. So, yeah, she just seems to have absolutely no conception of the fact that other human beings have needs besides her. She could not possibly be more spoiled. And I think this is one of the songs that the Oompa Loompas sing that actually should resonate with parents. Like, spoiled brats are very real, and they can come into fruition if you are giving your child anything and everything that they ask for at the drop of a hat. 
Yeah. I mean, it is difficult to be a parent for sure. Like what do we know? Um, but I think you have to be really careful, right? Like if, especially if you are well to do, if you have the resources to give your children virtually anything that they want, how do you ensure that the resource that you're giving them is also the perspective to understand what things actually cost and an understanding of, of how the real world works to set themselves up to, to make sure that they're set up for success when they become an adult. Yeah. I mean, they seem to be running an extraordinarily successful peanut company. So maybe Veruca Salt is going to be okay in life because she can just take over the peanut factory, but she's going to have to do some actual hard work to run that place successfully, right? She can't just whine to daddy all her, all her life. So I don't know how well Veruca Salt is going to turn out, assuming she survived the egg decator incident and did not get incinerated in the furnace. Yeah, I, we know how she's going to turn out, and it's terrible. Um, <laughs> but I, I really do think that parents have a difficult decision to make about balancing what they can afford with what is appropriate for, for kids. So it does seem like the Salt family could have sat down and done some very basic math and figured out that this was not a good investment and used it as a teaching moment to tell little Veruca, look, here's this enormous amount of money that we're spending. Maybe they had it to spend. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they were going to into debt. I don't know, but it definitely seems like they were making an obscenely bad call financially and they should have brought Veruca in on that conversation. Maybe she would have turned out a little bit better if they had been the kind of parents who would sit down and have that kind of conversation with her. So let's turn now to our final clip, which is the end of the movie. I guess we probably should have done a spoiler warning a long time ago, but this movie's like 50 plus years old. Um, so yeah, let's take a listen at what happens at the end. All of the children that end up going into the factory have been slowly plucked one by one into some dangerous situation and been sort of like led away by the Oompa Loompas to hopefully be restored to a healthy state. Charlie Bucket is the only one left at the end and turns out things went pretty well for him. So let's hear the conversation between Willy Wonka and Charlie. How did you like the chocolate factory, Charlie? I think it's the most wonderful place in the whole world. I'm very pleased to hear you say that, because I'm giving it to you. That's all right, isn't it? You're giving Charlie the... I can't go on forever, and I don't really want to try. So who can I trust to run the factory when I leave and take care of the Oompa Loompas for me? Not a grown-up. A grown-up would want to do everything his own way, not mine. That's why I decided a long time ago that I had to find a child, a very honest, loving child to whom I can tell all my most precious candy-making secrets. And that's why you sent out the golden tickets. That's right. So the factory's yours, Charlie. You can move in immediately. And me? Absolutely. What happens to the, the rest The whole family. I want you to bring them all. Grandpa Joe. What about me? <laughs> Looking out for number one. <laughs> That guy, man. That guy. You got a bed made out of chocolate for me, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is the grand finale, the big reveal that it, in the end, it wasn't just about a lifetime supply of chocolate and entering the factory. He was trying to find somebody to give the factory to. Yes. Yeah, so Charlie wins because he decided that he didn't want to keep the everlasting gobstopper, which, you know, he might as well have kept for himself because this is a lifetime supply of candy on its own. 
Uh, but you know, there's this mysterious Slugworth character that he could have given the gobstopper to, and it's revealed that Slugworth works for Wonka. And Charlie, because he was so honest that he didn't want to keep this everlasting gobstopper for himself, suddenly has the skills and tools necessary to run a, what I can only assume is a billion dollar chocolate business. I mean, I, I don't know, we know that it's, you know, multi-million dollar uh, in the salt family from a purchase standpoint. So yep. <laughs> it's, it's pretty big. Yeah, the chocolate factory seems to be doing very well, especially after this promotion. So this is an enormous responsibility to take on. And in the movie, it's portrayed as this like cutesy little thing where you're just going to be like walking around the factory, licking wallpaper and throwing coats into bats of chocolate that are too cold. I mean, it's just portrayed as this like super whimsical kind of thing. But in reality, that is an enormous responsibility that's going to take a huge team of very intelligent human beings to run. Yeah, well, I mean... Wonka has Slugworth working for him, or the guy who plays Slugworth, plus all of his slave uh, Oopa Loompa friends uh, that he's rescued from Loompa Land that yeah, seem I'm... to never want to know what life is like outside the factory. Yeah, unclear whether the Oopa Loompas are actually happy with their lot in life. But yeah, there's just so many things that are going to go into running this business. And Charlie, although he seems like a sweet and lovely boy... Like he's almost learned how to do percentages, Carla. I mean, he's so close. <laughs> he's He just has so much left to learn. And I think picking somebody to take on such a huge responsibility based on so little information at such a young age, not a great call. Worst succession plan I've ever heard of. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous, the idea that he's going to give out these five golden tickets, which who says they're going to children? Yeah, that's one thing that drives me so crazy because throughout the whole movie at the beginning... We see all these adults who are super excited to be part of this giveaway and buying like tons and tons of chocolate. And yet he just assumes that it's going to be a child that ends up with the ticket. Yeah, for all he knew, he could have gotten like two kids in there and that's about it. Yeah, or zero kids and all adults. I mean, let's be real. Kids only get money from their parents unless they're working a job like the paper route and they live in a family where they don't have to give it all to mom so they can eat more than cabbage water. So, yeah, I mean, kids have less buying power than adults. I think there's a very good chance that you're going to end up with five adults. So I feel like Wonka's insane for trying to give the, the company to a kid. I understand that he wants to have someone who he can teach his secrets to and give, give the magic recipe or whatever to. Although I think it's kind of silly that adults will do it the adult way and, and you're going to do it the Wonka way. But at some point, Wonka's going to retire and the Charlie Bucket way will be whatever whatever it is that might be a hybrid of the Wonka way and the, the grandpa Joe gravy train. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, No one should hire grandpa <laughs> Joe for anything. That guy's a lazy good for nothing. And we hate him. Yeah. Maybe. But Charlie, I mean, I'm sure he does have a lot of potential. Maybe. Yeah. He, he could one day grow into be a lint chocolatier. He totally could. He could be in those commercials uh, twirling one of those little, chocolate little things. things full of chocolate. Uh, what I was going to say is I don't know why he doesn't just sell the company. Right. If Wonka wants to keep the magic of the, the Wonka business around, he could go public, right? He Surely he could hire capable, competent people. He could set up business arrangements where they are not given the authority to go expose his secrets to other people. I have to imagine his secrets aren't that secret, by the way. Um, right. I mean, it's just 
It's just candy, you guys. It's not that complex. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, there's only so many ingredients that you can really put in there. And if you're selling these bars in America, you got to go list pretty much what all those ingredients are on the package. Very true. So, um, <laughs> in any case, uh, I don't know why he can't go find competent help that is an adult who understands his vision and he can split up these responsibilities. He can have someone run the business side of things. He can have someone run the candy and chocolate making side. I mean, he can have somebody make sure the Oompa Loompas are taken care of. Yeah, that seems like an urgent job. <laughs> but it doesn't have to be like one person to, to rule them all, right? He can have a CEO and an organizational structure that supports uh, an effective, responsible business. It seems like he already has that, right? He's got lawyers to draw up a contract. He's got someone to saw everything he buys in half that he puts in his office. Someone's got to do that. Yeah. Um. Oh, by the way, that whole thing about the kids signing the contract always just makes me crazy because children that young, their signature is not worth the paper it's written on. They have no ability to legally bind themselves to anything, let alone something that no one can read because the print is so minuscule and he does not provide them either an opportunity to read it or magnifying glasses to read it with. Like, it's just insane. No one can read that. But more more importantly, kids cannot sign contracts. They just don't have the legal capacity. So true. Well, so I think there's all kinds of responsible ways for Wonka to pass this business on to someone else because chances are good that Charlie's going to run it into the ground and there's going to be a bunch of homeless Oompa Loompas out there at some point in the future. But if he's not going to go public or he's not going to bring in other people, he's not going to sell it to somebody else to own it, um, a lot of cases, when you, a lot of times you see this sort of thing, it's it's a family business, right? Wonka doesn't have any kids other than those that he kidnapped or that he rescued from Lupa Land. <laughs> Don't know what's going on with those kids. Um, but if it were a family business, that's pretty tough too, right? Yeah, there's so many different dynamics that can come into play when you're talking about a family business. I mean, in reality, the, the model that Willy Wonka is talking about, like having a young kid that you use as an apprentice and you teach from a young age to run your business is not at all crazy or unheard of. It's called a family business, right? You start showing the kids what it takes to run the company and how to be successful at it when they're very young. And then when they're older, they're fully ready to step into the adult's shoes and take over. So this model is not at all unusual. It's unusual that he's doing it with this random kid that he's never met, who he knows precisely one thing about, that he's honest enough to give the cop stopper back and that's it. Um, but even in the context of a family business where something like this is considered much more normal, it can come with its own set of pitfalls, right? You've got this sense of pressure on the children to step into the family business, whether they want to or not sometimes. And then you've got this tension between the parents and the children of, you know, do they want to do this? Do they not want to do this? Are they good enough to do it? Yeah. Are the parents going to be disappointed in them? Are the the kids constantly going to be you know, living in fear of letting their parents down. I mean, it can get very messy and very complicated. So there's a lot of family businesses out there, like Johnson & Johnson, I think is one famous example of that, where they actually are a family-run business. But there's a book about the very intense fight that ensued over that family, over the estate, um, when one of the, the early patriarchs passed away. So yeah, all sorts of things like that can come into play. You've got people fighting over the business, fighting over the estate. I mean, anytime you're throwing family and money into the mix, it can get very, very complicated. Agreed. Well, family money, that sounds like Grandpa Joe's 
dream situation, right? Oh my gosh, he's so lazy. I'm sure he's just like, well, I get to kick back now. Time to get back in bed. That guy. That well, guy. I think that's all we have for you today. Um, go watch Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory if you haven't in a while. And uh, don't be a Grandpa Joe. Get out of bed. Get, get out, out of, of bed. Get out of bed, guys. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Take care.